0: Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace Church is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Mark chapter 11. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes wide to have a greater hope in Jesus than we had when we woke up this morning through your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, my name is still Joe, so that hasn't changed. Uh, Welcome back. And if you're watching online, welcome to you. Good morning to you. Well, last fall I made a commitment uh, to not use any running illustrations of... track season. I'm a runner or used to be a runner. I'm more of a jogger now. Um, Two of my children are runners, good runners, and um, so I made a commitment, and for the most part, I think I kept that commitment. Well, track season started a few weeks ago, so here you go. We're going to start with a running um, illustration, and then uh, we'll jump in. Well, both of my kids, Isaac and Lily, are track runners, and so uh, a lot of people don't if you're not a runner, you might not know that each day of practice is designed to do something different. So it's not just like they run three miles or five miles every day and then they suddenly get fast. Um, Every day is designed to do something different. So there are days, for example, that are hill runs, which is what it sounds like. You run up hills. And uh, there are days that you do shorter runs that would be like 200 meters or 400 meter repeats on the track and you're working on speed there are days that um, they do do very long runs just to build a base and endurance and then there are days where they do what's called a tempo run so for a prolonged period of time they travel at a pretty fast clip so let's say 20 minutes of the run is a very fast clip that is probably faster than most of us in this room could run even if we didn't all out run Well, this morning, we're going to do a tempo run through uh, Mark chapter 11 and 12. We're going to travel at a, a pretty fast clip. And just like running, just like these track practices, every way that we approach the Bible can have a benefit. So probably many of us are used to slowly reading certain passages, thinking about them, carefully digging into them, and that certainly has benefit. Some of you have been attending the Sunday morning Bible studies where you can dialogue about the passages. Um, But a lot of us don't go at faster clips at times. And I think um, both in my own personal Bible reading and also in preaching at times, we want to cover different paces and different levels. And I I found as I was preparing for this message, just doing a big overview, you, you learn things and you see things and you connect dots that oftentimes when we go into the details, we might miss the big picture. And my hope this morning is as we travel a pretty fast clip, you'll get this view of Jesus. The title of this message is The Unexpected King. You'll get this big view of Jesus as he interacts with all kinds of people that will build your faith for your life, your present day life and present day challenges. And you'll see if you know Jesus All is well, and he is for you. So, we're going to have a number of headings that are entitled, it will say something like the unexpected king, and then some other thoughts. So, the first one is the unexpected king arrives in unusual fashion. The unexpected king arrives in unusual fashion. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they, the disciples and Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem, Bethany and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you'll find a colt tied, a young donkey, and which no one has ever sat on, untied, and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them when Jesus had said, and they let them go. In other words, Jesus told me, get it. Okay, you're good. You can have it. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and they sat on it. So they didn't have a saddle, threw their their cloaks on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut off from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. In other words, prepare the way for the king. Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem. and He went into the temple. And when he had gone around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this, maybe in your Bible, says the triumphal entry. But remember the title of this, the subtitle of this point is The Unexpected King Arrives in Unusual Fashion. So there's some details about this that should jump out to us. So this is a king coming into Jerusalem and the people are responding. But one thing that's very noticeable is this king that's arriving is not on a a great horse that stands six feet high. Is not riding a chariot with a great procession. He's on a, a baby donkey, a very meek way to enter. I was thinking it'd be like Prince Henry coming to the U.S. Embassy in my Chevy Cobalt. It would be noticeably like, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? Well, there are, there are a number of reasons I think that Jesus is doing it. One is his kingdom was unlike any other kingdom before him. His kingship was unlike any other. He did not care, was not concerned about the things that other kings throughout history and other leaders are concerned about. Wealth and fame and power were not what he was concerned about. He was a humble king, a lowly king. And we know from the the verse in Zechariah, he was a king who was predicted to come. But he's a different kind of king. So in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this verse was written more than a thousand years before Jesus mounted the donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And this was written about Jesus, the unexpected king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. So this king that was coming was one who was righteous, who had no sin in himself. And he was one that brings salvation, brings rescue. One who would deliver us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. He was a unique king, an unexpected king. And this king's ride mode of transportation was this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, The foal of a donkey. The king of kings, the one who pre-existed before the world was made, finally accepts his kingship and does so in a humble and meek way. Because he was an unusual, unexpected, unique, one-of-a-kind king. Next big idea. The unexpected king curses empty religion. The unexpected king curses empty religion. So if it was in the modern day, Jesus wouldn't have just shown up at a church to have a photo shoot so he would show up on social media attending a church. He wanted nothing to do with religion that did not transform the heart and lives. Look at verse 12. And on the following day when he came to Bethany, he was hungry. Fully God, fully man. He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Some early buds of figs. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs, but often they had little buds of figs that would come on at that time of year. And he, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So this is sort of an unusual interaction. And in a few verses down, we're going to get the explanation. But the basic idea here is this fig tree represented israel represented god's people that looked very outwardly religious like a fig tree with green leaves from a distance it looked like a fruitful thing but upon closer interaction and encounter there was no life and jesus is going to explain that in a moment now look at verse 11 one more time before we go to the next section so this is after he got off the donkey he entered jerusalem He went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So in other words, Jesus shows up at the temple in the evening, and he sees something that really, 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 really bothered him, really concerned him. But he was calculated. He didn't address the problem that he saw. He went somewhere, he slept, and the next morning he came back in. Which brings us to the next point. The unexpected king came for the nations. This is a scene that is very unique in the Gospels. That that shows a side of Jesus that I think at times confuses us. I think at times it's even been used by sinful people to justify anger. So I'll explain it. But Jesus is not happy. And we're going to see why in a moment. Look at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem next morning. In night's sleep, he's ready to go. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So here's the scene. This is a wild scene. The part of the temple that, that Jesus was in, that he's flipping tables over, that he's telling people to get out, stop doing what you're doing, was the Gentile part of the temple that was designed for the non-Jews to be able to worship and pray and encounter the living God. And as the years had gone by, what it turned into was a market of livestock and a free-for-all and a money-making thing for both the religious leaders and the local people. Had nothing to do with prayer, had nothing to do with really, with worship of any kind. And Jesus, in his righteous anger, his zeal for his father, his zeal for the Gentile people to know him, has had enough. And he's flipping tables over. He's, he's kicking people out. And what I love about Jesus is he knows as soon as he does this, the religious leaders are not going to be happy with him. They're already very angry at him. They already want to kill him. But he so wants God's house to be God's house. So he flips over the tables. Look at verse um, 17. He's going to give the explanation for why he's doing what he's doing. Why the scene? See, if I flip this thing over right now and threw it off the stage, you'd be thinking, well, something's going on with Joe. He's not real happy today. Um, But there wouldn't be anything pure about that. When Jesus is doing it, it is pure. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting the Old Testament, is it not written, that my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. See, Jesus' heart was beating for the nations. The week we're in in Mark 11 is called the Passion Week. This is Jesus' slow, steady movement to crucifixion. And He knows He's about to be crucified for the sins of the world, which includes non-Jewish people like you and I. It certainly includes the Jews, but it included far greater than the Jews. See, his heart was so moved for the lost. And they are being taken advantage of. People were extorting them. And he was not happy about it. But look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking for a way to destroy him. For they feared because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came... They went out of the city. In other words, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Old Testament experts, could care less about the Gentiles, could care less about those who do not know the living God. See, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus, your heart should be moved for the lost. It should be part of who you are. To the degree that you appreciate the rescue that Jesus has done for you, I think it's to the degree that you will be moved. It's not right. Something is not firing correctly if we say we love Jesus and have been forgiven of all our sins and we are not moved for the lost. See, the religious leaders, they knew the Old Testament way better than we do. They could answer any Old Testament law quiz or test or exam. But they didn't have a heart for those around them. See, we want to be a church where our heart breaks for all walks of society who do not know the Lord. The unexpected king came for the nations. See, Jesus knows full well what's about to happen. And we know in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, we get a glimpse into the future where there's this great sea of men and women who have trusted in Christ. Listen to this. This is a glimpse of heaven. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. See, this is so near and dear to the heart of our King Jesus. He came to rescue. And he wants us to share that good news with others. So as he's continued walking and talking and teaching, his disciples begin to, to bring up the fig tree thing they're thinking about. Like, what was that? Why did he, how did he do it? How did he curse a fig tree that was a live tree? And why in the world did he do that? So look at verse 20 for the answer. They passed by in the morning, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. It was dead. And Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says shall come to pass, it will be done for him. In other words, you follow the king of the universe, and what he says will happen. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He didn't directly answer the question. But he demonstrated many things from his actions and from his response. See, the fig tree, as I said, represented Israel. And it looked like something it wasn't. And Jesus is saying, true relationship with the Lord involves trust, a real, live, active faith, and it results in a heart transformation. So, in other words, if you have been forgiven by Christ and you do not forgive others, it's another disconnect that the Lord wants to straighten out. Because Christianity has nothing to do with looking a certain way on the outside. See, the Lord is so much more concerned about what we're like when no one's around. What we're like when the door's shut on our house. What we're like when we're in our car. What we're like... In our thoughts. He wants our heart. And he's the only one that can change us from the inside out. And he wants to do that for you and I. He's an unexpected king. So you think of corrupt kings and leaders throughout the centuries. What were they concerned about? They were most concerned about the corrupt ones. They're they're concerned about what they look like. How big their kingdom is. how, How many lands they've conquered. How big their castle is. All the outward exterior things. That's not King Jesus. He's concerned about our hearts. Do we trust him? Do we really know his love for us? Have we really been washed of all our sins? See, he's a king and he bows to no one. The unexpected king bows to none. See, if we lived in this day and age, the the religious leaders would have been intimidating to us. To many of us. Not to Jesus. Look at verse 27. They came to Jerusalem. He was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They brought the whole crew. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, they're the authority in their minds, not Jesus. Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. And you will answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is going to turn the tables on them. Was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. They were trapping Jesus. He trapped them. And they discussed it with one another. So they had a religious leader's huddle over here, scratching their head. What should we do? I don't know what we should do. Here's what they came up with. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then do you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, so they were going back and forth. So if we say John the Baptist came from the heaven, from God himself, then they have a problem because why don't you believe in Jesus? Because John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. But if we go the other way, then the people are going to rebel against us. And they had fear of the people. For they all held, their personal conviction was John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. So he got them. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, Jesus does not need to bow to them. They need to bow to him. He's the authority. And the quicker we learn this, the more joy you'll have in your life, the more freedom you'll have in your life, the more peace you'll have in your life. If you know Jesus is king of your life, Lord of your life and you really live that way and you really believe that and you really trust in him then the fear of man the the craving of what people think about you it may be there it may be tempting but ultimately you're with the king and if you're with the king he's in control see the unexpected king stumbles the religious he trips them up they they fall if If your concern is just to have a show of religion, to look a certain way on the outside, then you're going to trip all over Jesus. You're going to have a major problem with Jesus. Jesus speaks in a parable here in chapter 12. He said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, built a tower, and leased it to the tenants, and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, get from them, Some of the fruit of the vineyard. And then he took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed In other words, the landowner, this is a parable, not a real story, sends a servant, check on the fruit of the vine, and they they beat him up. Again, verse 4, sent to him another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, some they killed. What this parable is referring to is the prophets of the Old Testament. God would send messengers, and the people would reject the messengers. Finally, verse 6, he had still one other, one unique one, a beloved son, a precious son, his only son, finally sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son, maybe not my servants, but definitely they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Have you not read this? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes see this parable was talking about jesus and the religious leaders understanding of who he was and he knew and they knew that they had an issue they could not reconcile because of their unbelief because they could not accept that the messiah was a humble really earthly by earthly standards poor man whose kingdom was an upside-down kingdom whose kingdom would result in death and crucifixion to rescue he's the cornerstone of salvation if your view of religion is you need to clean yourself up and do good things so others think highly of you you will trip over jesus see the bible's prescription for salvation is that you are sinful by nature You've rebelled against the Lord. And your only hope is in a perfect substitute and Savior. And that's the unexpected king, Jesus. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. And they perceived that he told a parable against them. So they left him and went away. They couldn't see it. They didn't want to believe it. They wanted to kill him instead of humble themselves and trust in Jesus, The next one I'm going to mention, but we're not, we're not going to read. We'll just jump forward for our temper run as we move here. The unexpected king instructs us to submit to local authorities. Jesus is something brilliant in verses 13 through 17. Read it on your own this week. The next one, and this is, should give you hope no matter how difficult your life is right now. The unexpected king will rise. He will rise from the grave there is no leader in history no king that could make such a statement and then back it up with actually becoming alive after he had died verse 18 the sadducees came to him another sect of religious leaders who said there is no resurrection they asked him a question see everybody's trying to trap jesus So the Pharisees believed in life after death. Sadducees didn't think there was a resurrection. Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, he leaves a wife, but leaves no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So I'll just tell you what they're going to say. So they say, what about the guy whose wife dies? Or or what about the woman whose husband dies and then she marries the brother? Then that man dies, and then she marries the brother. And that man dies, and she marries the brother. So seven brothers down the line, she has seven husbands on earth in a legitimate way because they all died, so it was lawful. But in the resurrection, who's her husband? Well, Jesus says in verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? I love that. You're just wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like the angels. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The unexpected king will rise. Those who are in Christ will rise with him. So no matter what your life is like, no matter how challenging, no matter how perplexing, difficult, painful, heart-wrenching, there is a glorious future that awaits you if you are in Jesus Christ. It is beautiful. If you are confined by major health issues and you are a Christian, there will be a day where, where that's long gone. If you are marked by sadness and sorrow and a grief that is just unbearable. Jesus himself, the risen king, will wipe away every tear from your eye. I don't know how it works, but it will become a faint memory. And you will have an eternity of joy in your relationship with the risen Christ. See, the resurrection, it points to our future. And we know from the Apostle Paul, it points to our present day Quality of Christian spiritual life we can experience. We can walk in new life because Jesus rose from the grave. So, whatever besetting sin that you are wrestling through, there can actually be change because Christ rose from the grave. The unexpected king will rise. Next one The unexpected king desires our hearts, he desires our hearts. This is so central to Jesus' mission and Christianity. It is a heartfelt faith. It's not an external faith. It's a heartfelt faith. See, the religious leaders are trying to trap him again. They say, okay, what's, what's the most important commandments? Verse 29, he gives these. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is One, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So as Christians, we know he loved us first. We received the gift of salvation, and we're to love him in response with all that we are. He wants your heart. He wants to capture your heart. And when you submit and surrender all your thoughts, feelings, and everything to him, you will be the most joyful that a human being can be as you worship him. And then he said, The second commandment's like this verse 31 you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So, as Christians, we have a vertical relationship with the Lord, and then it should show up in our horizontal relationships. We can't say, I worship Jesus, I love him, and I hate people. Doesn't work. Doesn't work according to Jesus. This should always affect this. And we should be forgiving and loving and kind and, and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, moving, moving forward. The unexpected king always was. Do your homework. Read verses 35 through 37. He was the pre-existent king and he came to earth. The unexpected king rebukes showy, hollow religion. Mark 12:35 through 40. Check that out yourself. But the idea there is the religious leaders, they loved walking around with their big robes and their long prayers and their show of religion, yet they had no affection for the lowly, for the lost, for the broken, all those that Jesus cared about. And the last one is this. The unexpected king responds to simple, radical faith. The unexpected king responds to simple, radical faith. The the worship band can come up as I just wrap up this last point. The unexpected king responds to simple, radical faith. See, Jesus is teaching the whole way. And now he has this real encounter with a dear, precious woman. Verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people putting in large sums. And a poor widow woman who had lost her husband and financially had little. This is what she did. She put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, this dear woman, has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had as she had to live on. This dear woman believed and trusted in the unexpected king. She submitted. She she went radical towards him. See, Jesus, never before was he anticipated a king would come like this, predicted, foreseen, and he shows up. And he changes everything. Everything. So what I want to do as we sing this final song, I want you to to talk to the Lord about what's weighing on you. Give him your cares. Ask him, Lord, I want to take risks for you. I want to be bold for you. I want to be radical for you. I want to have your heart for those around me and rejoice in what he'll do. Let's stand and pray and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you that you are king unlike any other before or after. Thank you that there is new life that you promise and make possible. Thank you that you are not done with us individually or as a church. Thank you that you love to work through the, the lowly and the broken. And Lord, that's us. We need you, and we anticipate you responding to our prayers. We'll give you all the glory, and we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.